have you here. God bless you. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you very much. It's good to see all of you this morning, and trust you had a good night of rest. Have, are you all familiar with a guy by the name of Mark Twain? Mark Twain said there's only one person that likes change. A baby. Their diaper. <laughs> and uh, I think he's probably right from that point on. As you age, I think change becomes more uh, challenging. Our ruts get deeper. It's harder to get out of them. And we operate under a false impression sometimes that what we have developed can't be any better than, there can't be anything any better than what we already do. And uh, certainly we ought not to think, I have to think about something else. Uh, that's a false impression because there can be better ways to do something. And the remark here about uh, form and function. <clears throat> God has only given us the functions. He's left to the creativity of people. The forms how you're going to do it. And that can vary throughout the world, and that can vary from one generation to the next. <clears throat> so we as church people, all over the place, I'm running into churches where they have basically an aging population. That tells me that they're not very open to the younger generation and their thinking. When I walk into a church and they're all gray-headed and bald-headed, uh, I know that I know that they have uh, probably forgotten that there's another generation that thinks differently and has other cultural things that are more meaningful to them. I'm going to get into that. I'm kind of jumping ahead. In the last hour this morning, we're going to try to cover some of that in detail. And the differences between generations, both within the church. When I first started in ministry, we only had two and three generations in a church. Today we have four and five generations in a church. Each generation has its own culture. And we've got to figure out how are we going to blend those cultures. And if we don't figure that out, one or more of those cultures are not going to be found in your congregation. So that's going to involve change. And then you've got to add to that the difficulty of the changing culture that's around us as a church. It's uh, changing pretty dramatically in some areas. Uh, changing in color of skin as well as uh, morals and a multitude of other issues. So I'm going to get into that, though, in the last hour or last session this morning and try to help you to think through that. <clears throat> I want to tell you a story about uh, Jacob, who is age 92. Anybody here 92 years old? No? And Rebecca, who was age 89, 92, 89, and they were living in Florida, and they decided that they would like to get married, 92 and 89. 
So they went for a stroll to discuss the wedding. And on the way, they passed the drugstore, and Jacob suggested that they go in. Jacob talked to the man behind the counter, and he said, Are you the owner? And the pharmacist answered, Yes. Jacob said, We're about to get married. Do you sell heart heart medication? And the pharmacist said, Of course we do. Jacob said, Well, how about medicine for circulation? He said, We got all kinds. Jacob said, Well, you got medicine for rheumatism and soliosis? Pharmacist, Definitely. Well, Jacob said, you have medicine for memory problems and arthritis and jaundice. And the pharmacist said, yes, a large variety. We got the works. What about vitamins and sleeping pills and Geritol? Absolutely. You sell wheelchairs and walkers, all speeds and sizes. Jacob said, great. We like to use this store as our bridal registry. I don't know what that's got to do with what I'm talking to you about, but I figured I had to get you awake somehow here and get involved. How many hunters do we have here? None? I guess I'd be considered a hunter. Do I need to define the word hunter? How many, how many of you carry a gun in the woods once in a while? Okay, two or three of you. Okay, think about this. An avid bow and arrow shooter who becomes outstanding with great skill in hitting the bullseye of the target from great distance. He has a place where he practices every day, year after year. Over the course of time, the area between where he stands and the target begins to grow tall weeds and brush, which eventually becomes very thick, becomes increasingly more difficult to hit the target. What should he change? Should he change the target? Should he change his equipment? Neither. He needs to adjust his method by standing in a different place or removing the weeds and brush. So it is with us as Christians in our churches today. Adjusting, we need to change some things. We don't change our equipment. We don't change the target. We have to change our methods. And that is the issue of what we have to work on And hopefully in this session, I'm going to help you understand the difference because increasingly I'm finding that in our churches that I travel in, they have a hodgepodge of things that they're all labeling as biblical. And they haven't sorted out what's really biblical and what is really man-made. So I want to help us to do that if I can this morning. Removing some possible impediments or growth-stunting conditions in evangelism and discipling in the churches. This thing is not... Oh, this is off. No wonder it isn't working. There we go. First of all, I want you to think through with me the changeless, God-given message in a changing world. God's message ought never, never to change. 
You ought never to change the Bible. You must take it as God gave it to us. You must not add to it. You must not take away from it. And I'll address that a little bit more in just a moment. But that is critical. So when I'm talking about change, you need to get fixed in your mind this thought that His Word is changeless. Do not change God's Word. Even though our world all around us is changing, the information explosion today compared to what it was 50 years ago, I mean, you can go on the Internet and you can find so much stuff, you can't read it all on any given topic. You couldn't do that 50 years ago. The technology explosion of our day, what can be done technologically today, the uh, cosmic exploration and travel, uh, dramatic expansion of cultures in almost all of our countries around the world, we're no longer melting into a main culture. But we have in every place where there's a church, they have to realize that there is no main culture anymore around that church. There are multiple cultures out there. God didn't tell us just to reach one culture. But he told us that he wants us to reach all. He did not make any distinctions. Uh, I assume that it's probably true in Canada as it is in the U.S. There's a growing secularization in the culture. It's changing. There's a growing ignorance. We no longer have a Judeo-Christian ethic in our culture. That's no longer existing. The, the lack of knowledge of Scripture today in American culture is staggering. It did not used to prevail. On I could go, the open expression of a more flagrant moral degeneracy than ever before. Uh, that's all changing around us. Our world is changing. And <clears throat> though the world is in a constant state of change, which is accelerating over time, and that's the amazing thing, it continues to accelerate at such a staggering pace, you can hardly keep up with it around you. Should we change the word or message to accommodate those changes? Not on your life. The message is the same. And I hope that you will remember that. And even as Proverbs tells us, buy the truth, do not sell it. Uh, do not give it up. <clears throat> there can be no change with God-made truth, without compromise. And I want to use Paul as an illustration here of that truth. Because when I go into a church and I start talking about change, I want you to understand the basic thing that I will not give up, and that's the Scriptures. If you ever see me deviating from the Scriptures, you rattle my chain, will you? Say, not there. You do not go there. And uh, that ought to be true of all of us. That we need to be like Paul was. Paul was faced with a challenge of carrying light, truth, into the city of Ephesus where there was no light. 
utter darkness. Paul was going to carry that in there under God's direction. And he put forth great effort to carry that light into Ephesus. Let me just quickly review some verses for you. In Acts 18, it talks about Paul's entrance into Ephesus, a city of total darkness. When he went into that city, there was no light in that city. Everything was dark. In Acts 19, Paul began preaching. God used him to perform some miracles. And there was an uproar that took place in the city because so many people were coming to Christ and the worship of Artemis and those who were making the idols and so on were losing so much business. There was a huge uproar. And they rushed into the amphitheater and for two hours charged, uh, talked about how great Diana was. And that's the kind of impact he was beginning to have, taking truth into darkness and dispelling the darkness. Uh, go with me to 1 Corinthians 15.32. And it describes that battle. Paul talked about it as fighting with beasts. That's how challenging it was for him to carry that truth, that light into that darkness and take on that darkness and push back that darkness, dispelling the darkness. Paul talked about it. It was a battle. It was like fighting with a beast, a wild beast. I've never fought with a wild beast, but I have seen pictures depicting it, others who have done it. And in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 8 and 9, though there are many adversaries, Paul said, there is a great and effective door for service open to us in Ephesus. Now, we're following just Ephesus and Paul's kind of a historical depiction of what happened in Ephesus with the gospel. Paul said there's a great open door here. We've got to take advantage of this. We've got to get more light in here. And then you come to the book of Ephesians itself, which is indicating that a substantive church of great light was founded in Ephesus. A dynamic, growing church came out of all of that effort. And in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 15, for example, there could be other verses, the struggle to keep that pure doctrine and theology Paul is constantly warning the church in Ephesus, do not lose truth. Do not lose doctrine. Do not lose the Word of God. Keep it fresh. All of the Timothy epistles, both of them, suggest that Timothy was a pastor there at Ephesus, and that's why Paul was addressing him in those two epistles. And finally, when you get to the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, Christ commends the church at Ephesus for many things. But they had now left their first love. And you can go to the city of Ephesus today and visit the ruins of a church that ultimately closed. Paul was just so committed. 
I don't think there was a greater change agent than Paul. But he was so committed to the Word of God that must not change. It must be kept bright and glowing and wherever he went. One of the last times he spent with the people at Ephesus, do you remember where it was? It was in Acts 20. And when Paul was meeting with the people at Ephesus, he was seeing them for the last time. He was not going to see them again because he's on his way to Rome. And he knows when he gets to Rome, he'll be in the Mamertine prison. And he'll not come out of there alive. They'll be taking his head off one day. That's how Paul died. They severed his head from his body. What were his final words to the church at Ephesus? The elders. Uh, and the final words were the issue of not allowing for a changing message. The Word of God. And in Acts 20, verses 27 to 28, he clearly defines the message. He says, For I have not neglected to share all of the Word of God with you. And then he went on in verses 29 and 30 and warns them, Be careful about anybody coming in from the outside that is going to change your message or attempt to change your message. Or be sure you do not allow anybody from within to rise up and change your message. Defend it. And finally, in verses 31 to 35, he talks about them carefully demonstrating that message in their lives and declaring that message. So I can't punctuate too much before I move into this area and more about change. That you and I have got to be guarded that we do not ever, ever change God's Word by neglecting or adding to the Word of God. So if you think about how do we make this relevant to worship and ministry today, uh, we've got to do... Something like this. Let me give you a couple of graphics. This is where I think churches today are uh, not clear. And they need to become clear as to what God made. God made the Scriptures. He breathed them out. And He gave them to us without error and with all authority. And we need to recognize that He made them. And He warned us, do not add to nor take away from the Scriptures. What is man-made? That which we make are traditions and preferences and culture. And... Uh, there are a lot of things that we have in our churches that are purely traditions. We made them at some point. Probably thought we had a good reason to do it. But now you can't change it because nobody wants to change it. And uh, same way with our preferences. I have a certain preference about music, but that doesn't make it authoritative. That does not make it God-given. That's my preference 
And uh, I have various other things that I've built a culture about. And I'll talk more about that in just a moment. So, anyway, God made, you must not change. To change it is compromise. That which is man-made, to change, is non-compromise. If there's a good reason to change it, it's not compromise to do that. God's not going to be offended. God's not going to be hurt. He's not going to say it's sin. So we need to be able to sort those two areas out so that we can, when we're making changes, if there's a good reason to change. I'm not talking about changing just for the sake of change. I mean change only if there's a good reason to change. I can better fulfill my functions with this form rather than the form we've been using. Take the area of evangelism. How many different things can you think of in the past that at one point were very effective? Today, they're not. I'm assuming that there's not much difference between our two countries. But in America, we used to have busing. And uh, we used to have two-week evangelistic meetings. And, uh, And all kinds of things that gradually became ineffective. Do we just keep doing it just because we've always done it? No. Those are just forms, man-made forms. And it's okay to change those things and it won't be compromised. It isn't simple. I may not, I may have a preference about one of those things, but that isn't really the issue. What's going to be more fruitful? How do I get to much fruit? That's what's driving us, okay? Another graphic. Sola Scriptura. You've heard that phrase, right? Sola only. Scriptura, scriptures. In other words, we say only the scriptures are the authority for what we are to believe and practice. Only the scriptures. Nothing more, nothing less. And so let's think about that for a moment. How can I depart from the Scriptures? Well, number one, over on the right-hand side, is licentious relativism. If I begin to become relativistic as I think about the Scriptures, and I start reading a text about homosexuality, and I realize there's a lot of homosexuality around, and they don't like it when I don't like them. And, uh, or I speak about their lifestyle. I may like them, but I may speak against their lifestyle. Uh, so I begin to soften that message. And I begin to move away from that message. That's relativism. Uh, other issues today in the church. Women pastors. Uh, many other issues are out there, and some churches are softening those messages or ignoring those passages that might cause them discomfort because they're moving in a different direction. That is relativism. And I want to say to you, to be less than the Scriptures or to take away from the Scriptures is compromise. Okay? But now let's go to the other side of the pendulum. 
and come over to legalistic moralism. What do I mean by legalism? By legalism, that I'm using the term here, what I mean by it is where you go further than God has gone. Remember our man-made things? Traditions? Preferences? Culture? Sometimes we elevate those to the level and we give them the authority of the Scripture. We say to change any of these things is sin. And we get very bent out of shape. And we start fighting in the churches over all of those man-made things that we no longer can do. Like the couple I told you about last night who they were feeling that not to pray before you take up the offering is sinful. That's a man-made thing. God didn't tell us a chapter and a verse that you need to pray before you take up the offering. Where you put the prayer in, the, in your service is up to you. God wants you to pray, but he, where you put it, he doesn't care. And for us then to say, you got to pray before you take up the offering, you have just, and it's sin if you don't, you've just added to the Word of God. That's pretty dangerous stuff. Legalism. And I run into a lot of legalism in our churches. And it's a difficult thing. Okay? I want to suggest to you that when you are more than the Scriptures, you have effectively added to the Scriptures. That's just as much compromise as to be less than the Scriptures. So can I give you some... Uh, illustrations of what I'm talking about. To be less than the scriptures, I think the emerging church movement, they did a good thing. They featured for us and focused for us the issue of culture. But the culture began to drive them. And they began to get to the place where they were willing to give up some clear scripture in order to be more relevant with the culture. They were departing from the Scriptures. And we can't go there. And I think that's part of the issue with an interdenominationalism and neo-evangelicalism. If you're not careful, you're going to give up Scripture in order to accommodate certain things that you want to see happen. David Wells is a writer. And this is kind of, this is going to stretch you for being so early in the morning. Think about this. I may have to read this thing twice before you get it, okay? He's that kind of a thinker. He says, The fact is that the enculturation of the evangelical world, our evangelical world has taken on a culture. It's been enculturated. And its self-betrayal through its theologically emptied out faith if we're not careful, we can empty out our faith so that it's not meaningful, not biblical. Is the reason why the church has no answer to the national crisis of character. It is also the reason why the postmodern world is not hearing as it should a word from God. There has come a hollowing out of evangelical conviction. 
a loss of the biblical word in its authoritative function and an erosion of character to the point that today no discernible ethical differences are evident in behavior when those claiming to have been reborn and secularists are compared. He nailed it. That's why I am driving home this morning the first thing, the importance of the Word of God. Do not be less than the Word of God. Now, what about more than the Scriptures? This can take into the issue of what I call extreme fundamentalism. What is extreme fundamentalism? To me, extreme fundamentalism is a philosophy and practice expressed typically with excessive narrowness, a lot of rigidness, hardness, legalism, often KJV only. They fight over old Elizabethan English and much more. They've become more than the scriptures. And that, to me, is just as much compromise and doing as much to minimize the effect of God today as the other is. And we've got to figure out somehow to get right where the Scriptures are. Not more than, not less than. Okay? That's not easy, and it's not easy to stay there. Paul demonstrated that with the church at Ephesus. He had a hard time keeping him on target. And uh, we need to make sure that we are there. It is possible to be more separated than God is or to be more conservative than God is. Remember that. The Pharisees are exhibit A. They got all of their legalism. You can take just so many steps on Sunday or Saturday and you got to do this and you got to do that. And you got to do all man-made stuff. We got the same kind of stuff going on in our churches. You got to have a certain dress style. Anybody know where God said that this will be the dress style for Sunday service? This will be the dress style for the platform, but not for the congregation. Anybody know where God said anything close to that? I think only in the fact of moderation, modesty. Good. So think these things through. Don't become more than the Scriptures. Don't be less than the Scriptures. Do everything that you can to be right where the Scriptures are. And the second big thing that I am, before I get into our impediments, wow, I'm using up a lot of time here, uh, maturing into our great commission potential. As I mentioned to you, I was born in Cooperstown, New York. My dad was connected with Cornell University as an extension agent. In other words, he was put there in a county by Cornell University to help farmers. And uh, my dad grew up on a farm, and uh, that's where I was born. And I grew up, however, on a dairy farm because my dad, my grandfather had a stroke, so my dad moved back to the family farm, and I was raised on that farm and uh, got saved, as I mentioned to you, uh, the summer I got out of high school. 
And the little town that our farm was near, about a mile outside of town, was about 150 people. Uh, it was just a little place. In fact, Jackie was astounded to find out how remote it was when she, I took her back there to shore where I grew up and the farm where I grew up. And uh, back in those days, when I grew up on the farm, it was pretty much a 24-7, 365-day job. And uh, it kept us busy. We had a large farm and a lot of work in a day of without automation. We had about 60 cows and 3,000 laying hens and five or 600 acres of land to work. And uh, my dad and my two brothers and I were busy most of the time when we weren't going to school or playing ball and uh, or hunting. And uh, finally, uh, God saved me. It was a wonderful thing. Greatest day of my life. And he began to change me. Just as Wayne told us. Stop to think about the change that's taken place in your life. But back at that day before you were saved and what it is today. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That is change, my friend. No matter how old you are, that has to take place and does take place. And uh, it took place in my life. And one of the areas was uh, the area of evangelism. And I had, soon after I was saved, God began to deal with me about ministry. And I went to a school in the south of America. And I got down there, and one of the upper-class students said, how about going out and passing out tracts to me next Saturday? I said, what? I had never heard of a track. I didn't know what a track was. And he so he pulled one out of his pocket and showed me what a track was. So I didn't really want to do that. I could talk to Holstein cows all day and do pretty good. But I wasn't sure I was ready to go out on the streets and talk to people. That was a different thing to talk to people than it was to talk to Holstein cows. But I finally knew that if I didn't do it, I wouldn't please the Lord, so I decided, okay, I'll go with you. And I was petrified. And we got on the streets. He said, you don't have to say anything. Just hand him a track and encourage him to read it. So along came this guy carrying a briefcase. And I handed him a track and encouraged him to read it, but he stopped. Nobody else before had stopped. And he set his briefcase down, and he began to ask me questions. And he took me all over the place, asked me questions in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. I didn't have a single answer for him. I knew I was saved, but I did not have any answers for all his questions. And I was probably, if you could have taken my blood pressure at that point, I'm not sure it would register. It had been so high. And uh, finally I said to him, sir, what do you do? What's your business? He said, well, I'm the head of all the Jehovah's Witnesses for North Carolina and South Carolina. And under my breath, I said, Lord, you sure picked a doozy for a first-time experience. And uh, 
My friend realized I was in trouble, and he came over and bailed me out. And he had the answers for the guy, and I had not grown to that point yet. I just wanted you to see. I was, you know what a zero is? If you could wipe out that line of the zero, that's about where I was, where I was starting from in my life. And I had a long ways to go, and I'm still going today. For example, I would not be top-notch when it comes to talking to Muslims. Uh, That's something I've got to learn. Because we're getting a lot of Muslims in America, and probably up here, the same thing. And God didn't tell us to skip the Muslims. He told us to reach all people. And so we have a job on us to keep growing. The development of an evangelistic vision, heartbeat, and practice is something that must be built with commitment and effort. You don't automatically get that when you get saved. You've got to build it. You've got to work at it. You've got to grow in these areas. And when I got off that street that day, I had to make a choice. Was I going to get back into my cocoon? Was I going to get back into my comfort zone? Or was I going to stay out there and begin to grow, begin to have a better understanding of the gospel, begin to have a better understanding of different people groups and how to minister to them? So while I was in college, I made it my mission to have practical ministry in local churches, more on the streets, I went to jails. I went to chain gangs. Uh, they have in the South chain gangs, uh, youth rallies, and I went to military bases and learned how to deal there. I went to the secular university campuses and learned how to deal there. I went to rescue missions. I tried to touch every different kind of people group there was and figure out how do I communicate the gospel to these people trying to grow in my relationship. And the first church that I had when God finally got me out of college uh, was all farmers. I knew how to work with farmers. I understood them. I went out and I would ride in a combine with them and talk to them because I learned farmers, you don't wait till they get in the house at night. When they come in out of the cold air and come into the house at night, they probably go to sleep on you when you're trying to talk to them. So that's not the place to do it. The place is to get out there in the combine with them or walk down through the barn or be in the milking parlor with them or something of that sort in order to be able to talk to them. But then along the line, God took me to a church in Jamestown, New York. Jamestown, New York is a place of 50,000 people. And primarily, you're either a Swede or an Italian in Jamestown. There are so many Swedes in Italian that they have an official Swedish consulate office there. When the king of Sweden came to America, he spent two days in Jamestown. That's how many Swedes there are there. Well, I didn't realize it, but when I got to that church, they were all Swedes except for one lone Italian lady in the church. <laughs> Tina Malaire. She was probably in her 50s. Her husband was not saved. 
Her husband was the head of the band department and the local high school. And that was a high school of 3,000 students. And he was in charge of all the band. So they had a lot of contact with unsafe people. So in the church, I was burdened that we were not reaching the Italian people. You do recognize there's a difference between Italians and Swedes? <laughs> yeah. Switzerland? Sweden? <laughs> Sweden? <laughs> so anyway, uh, I, they, all, they both have meatballs. Swedish meatballs and Italian meatballs. From there on, it's different. And uh, anyway, I was trying to figure out how, as a church, we could reach these Italian people. So we had special events, and we would invite them. Our people worked with them at work. They had neighbors that were Italians. And I was trying to figure out how we could get them in. And we'd have VBS, and we had all those traditional things. And we got zero. We could not get any of them to come. I finally figured out that we were going to have to move to a neutral site. They were not going to come to our church. We were going to have to go to a neutral site to reach them. So I went to that one lone Italian lady, and I said to her, Tina, see how many young Italian couples you can get to come to your house and let me come over and meet them. They will go to a friend's house. Two weeks later, she said to me, I got eight couples. When do you want to come? So I went up to that door at 7 o'clock at night. I knew they had never been that close to a Protestant preacher before in their life, much less a Baptist preacher. And so I went up to the door, and we greeted each other and talked to each other. I spent about an hour letting them get acquainted with me and I with them. And then I said, I'd like to do a little Bible study with you for about 20 minutes, okay? So I did a study with them. Got done. They said, wow, this is awesome. We've never done anything like this. I said, would you like to do it again? Yeah. So we set it up. We'd do it for two months in one of their houses. And every couple came every week. At the end of a year, I had 13 whole families out of that one Bible study that got saved and came to Christ, and I baptized them in the church. That same year, we had 200 adults. I didn't count the teens or kids. We had 200 adults saved that year in the church and baptized. 150 of them were Italian Roman Catholics. It was an amazing time. It was just awesome. And how God was allowing me to grow in my understanding and trying to figure out cultural things and be able to connect and be able to communicate effectively with these people. It was just something I had to learn. Paul had to learn the same thing. In Romans 10, you can read about his life and testimony of how he grew. And Paul apparently studied Isaiah in the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, very thoroughly. Because just take the quotes from Isaiah and Romans, two chapters, 9 and 10. There they are. Every one of those have a quotation out of the book of Isaiah. 9 and 10 are the first ones listed there. 
These up and down here, and up and down here are the Romans text. These and this side of the columns are out of Isaiah. Paul knew Isaiah very well, and he quotes him all the time. And they're all verses dealing with evangelism. Paul learned from Isaiah about how to do evangelism, how to reach lost people. And I found that just amazing when I was discovering that in that text. And so I went back to Isaiah and I said, what did he learn from Isaiah? And I began to realize in Isaiah 6, for example, Isaiah is giving his testimony. And he talks about, in verses 1 to 4, about he had to bring into focus his upward perspective. God. Who God is. What he's doing. And the value that God has for souls and the vision that God has for reaching souls. He brought all of that into focus in his life. And then he brought into focus the inward perspective. He talked about his own being, how undone he was and how God had to transform his life and change his life. And I thought, wow, I can really relate to this. It wasn't until I got out of high school and somebody came into my life and told me about the Lord. I had to focus God first. And then I could see clearly myself. And then I began to focus my own life, my inward being. And God began to change me and use me. And finally, focusing the outward perspective. God finally pointed his eyes outward. Isaiah's eyes outward. And talked about the people that needed to be reached. And he said, who will go for me? And Isaiah came to that point and said, here am I. Send me. I'll go. And that's powerful stuff. That's the kind of stuff that Paul was learning from Isaiah. And Paul probably became one of the greatest evangelizers of all time. What changed in Paul's life? What transformed in Paul's life? Number one is the passion of his heart. God changed his heart. God gave Paul such passion, passion like Jesus Christ. I tell you, I haven't fully measured up to Paul's passion. Listen to it. I tell the truth in Christ. Paul's writing this in Romans 9. I'm not lying. You're not going to believe what I'm going to say. But I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. I can't say that it's been continual. I'm probably like most believers. I've had times when I've been really hot. But I've been times when I've been cooler. And God had to prompt me again to come back up and be hot again. Paul said it was continual with him. This passion that drove him. He said, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ. That means cut off from Christ. Now that he's been connected to Christ and experienced that and the hope of heaven, he said, I could wish 
that I would go to hell if others could come to Christ. I'll tell you, he came to a level that few people get to. It is so like Jesus. And you and I are going to come to that same place. Furthermore, he goes on to tell us in his evangelism pursuit in 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23, he learned the great skills in cross-cultural communication and reaching people groups of all different sorts. That's a great text. And we don't have time to go there, but I hope you will go there and study that out. Wow, I spent way too much time on this opening. Finally, I'm going to get to the impediments. <laughs> you thought I was never going to get here, didn't you? I have a confession to make. Since I sent the outlines to Pastor Wayne, I've added a couple points. So get ready to write in the margins or something, some thoughts here. What are some of the impediments? Let me just see if I can get them out here for you. I think an impediment in the church that keeps us from growing, both deeper as well as outward, is leadership that is not qualified or adequately prepared. It's been said, and I think it's an accurate truism, it's been said that everything rises and falls on leadership. To put it differently, a church can never rise higher than its leader. So if you've got a number four out of one to ten, a number four leader, that church can never get higher than number four. Uh, that leader needs to grow. Because he's, he's put a lid on that work. And that is never a good thing. And he needs to keep going up the scale until he can get up to a 10. And so everything's going to rise or fall on leadership. Second thing that I would put up here, ensure that people with spiritual gift of leadership, this is broader than the pastor. Anybody that's in a leadership post in a church, make sure that the people you ask to take on a particular role of leadership, that they are gifted in leadership and that they're going to be taking over that post, but they are going to continue to be committed to developing their leadership skills. And they're going to begin to make sure that they always maintain passion for what they're doing. If you put people, even though they may have a leadership gift, into a particular role in a church, but they're not passionate about that that they're assigned to, you're not going to go very far. So leadership is a tremendous issue when it comes to growth. It can be an impediment. It can keep you from growing. Second thing that I is not on your notes, some issues negatively impacting worship services. 
There are few things more critical to a church's growth than an effective communicator leading the weekend teaching. The dilemma is that many who serve in the primary communication in their church aren't spirit-gifted teachers. There are lots of people who want to talk, but they're not really spirit-gifted teachers and ought not to be there. They can be someplace in the church talking, but not the main communicator on Sunday in the morning worship. So make sure that the point communicator has the spiritual gift of teaching and that he is actively working at developing that gift. Okay? The quality of the worship experience is even more important than its style. Though style is important, needing to contextualize with the culture, quality, work at quality. I can't tell you how many churches I am in where the piano is out of tune. Or the instrumentalist is a half a beat behind where the leader is. And other issues, that the transitions from one part of the morning service to the next is not smooth. And uh, I've, I have seen where they were moving from one thing into another, and the person who was coming up to take care of this next thing was slow getting up there. And you lose people. They're used to television where everything goes Not a lost second. So they come to church and they go to sleep in between moving from this to this. Or their mind begins to wander off about the picnic that afternoon or something else. And you've lost them. Quality. Quality. Quality needs to be up there high on your list of worship. Now why is all of this so important? Because worship, particularly morning worship, is the front door of the church. That's where people are going to be coming into your church. And first impressions are essential. Some churches, the atmosphere is uh, something that they need to consider and think about. They think they're friendly. Jackie and I are in churches where not a single person says a word to her. She has to take the initiative. Nobody talks to her. They're talking to each other, but not her. Our home church, I think, is pretty friendly, but they got some work to do. Recently, a lady told us that she went to that church, and she walked up the steps. There were people on the platform before you go into the church, she made her way through those people. She walked on into the building and got all the way through the foyer and got all the way into the auditorium and sat down before somebody finally spoke to her. They were all talking to each other. 
Now, if you ask that church if they're friendly, they'll say yes. Because they talk to each other. And they do a lot of friendliness with each other. And, but outsiders or people who rarely are there can come in and go out and think this church is not a friendly church. This is a cold church, and they're going to be gone. So first impressions. A lot of churches are going to what they call guest services, where they work on these issues and try to make sure that the church is going to be all that it ought to be in that worship service. Impediments. A third one. A fortress mentality that creates the existence of an isolated subculture. Churches and individual Christians tend to deliberately or inadvertently over time develop comfort zones. Or they are so afraid of the contamination of a hostile world that they pull back into their cocoon, into their comfort zone. And a lot of times it's the fear of ungodly people and perceived worldliness that is out there. They don't want to get contaminated. Another time it's the fear of evangelizing unsaved people, the fear of losing doctrinal content and purity. The Lord Jesus, remember this, the Lord Jesus lived from the perspective and practice of primarily the offensive not the defensive. Part of the reason for building a fortress is we are so defensive-minded. We've become almost like this story. I was walking across a bridge one day and I saw a man standing on the edge about to jump off. I immediately ran over and said, Stop! Don't do it! Why shouldn't I, he said. Well, there's so much to live for. Like what, he said. Well, are you religious or atheist? Religious, he said. Me too. Are you Christian or Jewish? Christian. Me too. Are you Catholic or Protestant? Protestant. Me too. Are you Episcopalian or Baptist? Baptist. Wow, me too. Are you Baptist Church of God or Baptist Church of the Lord? Baptist Church of God, he said. Me too. Are you Baptist, are you original Baptist Church of God or are you Reformed Baptist Church of God? Reformed Baptist Church of God. Me too. Are you Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1879 or Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915? Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915. To which I said, Die, heretic scum, and push them off. <laughs> Some of our churches are about like that. Remember my little graph? Where they have gone further than God has gone. And that is a huge impediment. This fortress mentality where we build high walls and put a moat out there and put alligators in the moat and try to so isolate. We create a subculture that has no connection to be used of God with our communities. Jesus worked diligently to train his disciples to live outside of the fortress, just as he did. 
without engaging in the unsafe person's sins. And I have several verses you can study. In Mark 4, he talks about it. And in Matthew 16, where he's building his church. And Luke 7, where he's been invited by a religious liberal to come for supper. And while he's there with a religious liberal for supper on Saturday night, lo and behold, the local prostitute comes in and joins him. I want to tell you, if the average pastor did that today, the telephone lines would melt before uh, Sunday school could start the next day because they can't handle it. That's how Jesus lived. And tomorrow, I'll probably get into some more of that, helping you to see we need to get connected. You cannot communicate without connection. Quickly, and... Individual believers isolating from the unsaved in daily life. A disconnect from the cultures of the world. How do you think the Lord Jesus wants Christians to live in relation to the lost? We struggle with that, don't we? Uh, we struggle big time with how to relate to the unsaved in the world. And there are four different possibilities. Number one is rejection. Isolate as far as you possibly can from the unsaved. You withdraw, you pull back, you get out of their lives as much as you can. You stay away from them as much as you can. And we're so afraid of contamination that we have no social contact with unsaved people. We have a message, but no audience. Secondly is immersion, the exact opposite of rejection. These believers are essentially indistinguishable from the world with no radical difference. They have succumbed to the world's pressures to become like them. They've been pushed into the mold of the world. These people don't have a message, but they do have an audience. <laughs> they are connected. Thirdly is split adaptation. This is a person who tries to blend with both ends. They try to be like both. It's sort of a, a spiritual schizophrenia kind of an experience. And they're trying to be citizens of both worlds and comfortable in both worlds and trying to be at home in each world. So they drift with a majority opinion. And these believers don't have a message and they don't have an audience. Why don't they have an audience? Nobody respects them. Here's where I think the Bible teaches us to be. <clears throat> critical participation. I think critical participation is talking about being spiritually distinct from the world, but not segregated from the world. It's talking about being salt, and light in the world. Salt and light do no good in the fortress. You've got to be out there. Thinking and acting biblically while you are connecting in the culture of the unsaved. These believers have a message and an audience. And I think this is where we need to strive to come to 
and not be so isolated from the unsaved. So what is the answer to how we should live in relation to the unsaved? Just like Jesus did. Learn to live like he did. He's our model. And you can study his life and you're going to find out that he hung out with some pretty wrong people some of the time. And you're going to find out he associated freely with very undesirable people of this world. He didn't isolate from them, but he did it without compromise of the integrity of his belief or his life, his godliness. And I'll be spending time talking about that tomorrow. Okay. My next one, number five. Ministry only within four walls. That's been historically true, that ministry has basically taken place within the four walls or the grounds of the church. And uh, most of the evangelistic effort that we put forth has been centered in the church building, not away from the church building. And we are finding out that that still does bear some fruit. We ought not to give these things up that are taking place in the church building, but we've got to learn how to develop more of our ministry away from the church building. Because Christians are going out there, and we have to find out how to do that more effectively, and I'll talk about that in the next hour. Uh, some of the current evangelistic strategies being used by various churches are outside the four walls of the church facility and property, and they involve felt needs. Do you know what I mean by felt needs? Good. Some of you are not sure. A felt need is something that happens in people's lives that doesn't have any effect with eternity or spiritual needs directly. It has to do more with a need that you have living in this world. You just lost your job. That's a felt need. One of your family members is going into the hospital for surgery. That's a felt need. Uh, somebody just was in an automobile accident. Somebody just experienced a flood that came through and wiped out their house. Those are felt needs. They don't have anything to do with eternity. They have to do with felt needs now. A single mother trying to raise children today has oodles of felt needs. How is she going to pay her bills? How can she work eight hours a day and take care of being with her kids at school and keep up the house and all the many other things that a single mom has to do? How can a caregiver be strung out so far taking care of a loved one? And have, they have a lot of felt needs. They all have to do with this world primarily. So churches that are reaching out today, getting out into the community more, are focusing on felt needs. I'll clarify that some more in a moment. Okay, you're going to have to need resources to be able to do this. Money, people, and that will become clear when I get to it in greater detail. Okay, non-productive ministry philosophies and programs. All of these are impediments that are in our churches. They need to be addressed. They need to be cared for. 
Okay? Number six, non-productive ministry philosophies and programs. It's amazing to me how we often hang on to some of our programs that are no longer productive. Uh, I want you to try something here. I want you to take those nine dots, start at any dot you want to start at, and draw four straight lines. Don't put a crook in it. Four straight lines. And without lifting your pen off in the paper, go through all nine dots. Can you do that? What do you think? I see. Let me show you how to do it. Let me show you how to do it. You have to get outside of the box to be able to do it. And most of us have a hard time thinking outside of the box. We think about we've always done something the same way, and we've got to continue to do it. No, you don't have to continue to do it the same way. Here's an interesting statement from Albert Einstein, a very brilliant guy, right? You acknowledge that Albert Einstein was very brilliant? Listen to what he said. Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. That is uh, very true. We take the same programs that are no longer productive and we just do them over and over and over again and we're expecting different results, but they never happen. Einstein says that's insanity. (laughs) Impediments. This is a great one. And we have boxes that kind of lock us up. We have theology boxes that kind of lock us up. And uh, I'm going to skip through this. Uh, I think you can get too far over on the Calvinism scale or too far over on the Arminian scale, and they're going to be theologically non-productive. That's one area to think about. And we have sacred practices boxes that we have, and we've always done it this way before. And... uh, you, you know what the famous last words of a dying church are? We never did it that way before. Those are the famous last words of a dying church. We never did it that way before. Uh, and you can get into worship styles and music and invitations or whether or not to give an invitation. I uh, know people who think you have to have an altar call after every sermon. So I usually say to them, when do you think the first altar call was given in a church or any place? They don't know. It was in the late 1800s by Finney, an evangelist in Rochester, New York, was the first time that a public invitation was given for people to come forward, so-called altar call, coming forward to the altar. Now, people were getting saved before that. That was just a method. That was a human method. God doesn't give you a 
chapter and verse and says you have to have an altar call. That's just a human way of trying to carry out the function. But there may be other ways you can carry it out depending upon the culture. There was a day when that was not a problem for people to go forward. Today, we have a different kind of culture today. That's not maybe the best way to be able to reach them. A lot of churches are using a card in which you mark down at the end of the service, I have a real interest in salvation. I don't know fully what it is. Could somebody talk to me about that? Mark it. Pass it in. Uh, there are different ways to do things. Our sacred practices. Door-to-door -door evangelism. Some areas that may be very effective, but most areas anymore in America, going door-to-door -door is not effective. Fifty years ago, when I used to go door-to-door, -door, it was very effective. they say, hey, come in. Sit down. Can I get you a cup of coffee? And you could talk about the Lord and lead people to Christ. You mostly will not get past that door and you may get a word or two said to you because you encroached on their time alone. Why do you think they have gated communities to keep people like us out? Uh, the culture changes. Friends, we have to change our methods to make, meet cultures and to be able to be effective. But so our sacred practices box Another is our structure and strategy box. Once a year evangelistic events or two-week meetings and those things that don't work anymore. And our self-perception box. In other words, evangelism is for extroverts. I'm not an extrovert, so I shouldn't be expected to do evangelism. Uh, I'm not gifted in that. That's for the professionals, like the pastor. Uh, self-perception box. So we got a lot of these boxes that we got to get out of and work at in our churches. Every church has one or more growth engines. You know what it is in America? One of the strongest growth engines is a dynamic children's ministry in the church. In America. I'll tell you, the younger parents are drawn to a church where they have a dynamic children's ministry going on. Even more so than teens in America. There are growth engines that you need to feed, you need to make much of, get them to grow, fund them. Okay, and I come here, I think, uh, to a cultural one, and I'm going to be next time talking about this. Just fill in your blanks. I'll come back and revisit some of this in the next hour. Culture is important to God. Let me show you. Upper left-hand corner is God's world from eternity. <clears throat> it's a place that has its own culture. It is a place of supreme holiness without sin. God's significance and glory is paramount. It is a place of its own culture, its own language, its own music, etc. 
when God got ready to reach humans, did he just stay in that culture and shout at us and try to get us to come over into his culture? No. He left his culture and came into our culture, humans, world, a very different culture than God's culture. And it's a place of lawlessness and sin and depravity and brokenness and death. He became a man and lived among us that he might communicate to us who God really is and his message that he in turn can take us to God's culture. Friends, that's so relevant as a model for us in our churches. Every church has its culture. And if you aren't careful, the church culture can become so different than the cultures of all the other peoples around the church that they feel very foreign when they come into your church. So if you're living in a culture out there that is very casual, and Sunday morning they come into a church where dress is very formal, will they come back? Missionaries have to learn this and learn it well. When they go to a foreign soil, they've got to learn to dress like the people they're trying to reach. They have to learn to speak like those people speak. They have to learn to eat what those people eat. They have to learn to do everything that's in that culture and become as much like that culture as possible to be effective in reaching them for Christ. If they try to remain little America, they will not be effective. God the Father taught us that long before when he himself came into this world. Did that require change on God's part, Jesus' part? Look and see. What did Jesus do? He had to change some things. When he came out of God's culture into our culture, the atmosphere changed, culture, language changed, food Dress changed. Music and activities changed. Jesus was willing to make all of those changes to reach us. So if you have a church of any length of duration that's existed for 50 years or whatever, and it has its culture, that church has got to realize they may need to change the culture that's in that church building in order to be able to reach the changing cultures that are out there in this world, just like a missionary does. And I'm, telling, I'm probably saying things that are making you uncomfortable. But that's what God did. Are we trying to say we can do it better than he did? This is one of the reasons why so many churches are dying. And why they're declining? Because they refuse to change the culture in their church. Culture is not a biblical issue. It's man-made. So you can change it without difficulty. 
Finally, authoritative and stifling traditions of the elders. I got four minutes left. Remember this graphic. Try not to be more than the scriptures. Try not to be less than the scriptures. Try to be right where the scriptures are indeed sola scriptura. Now, if you're way over on the left-hand side, legalism, here's a truism. Legalism and mercy cannot coexist in the same church. Every church I have ever seen has a lot of legalism in it. There is no mercy in that church. You cannot be a true legalist where people have got to dot their I like you do and cross their T like you do and do everything like you do that's beyond God. God never said those things. You just made them up. Are not merciful people. And in order to reach lost people, you've got to become merciful. God is so merciful. He said, be merciful even like your Father in heaven is merciful. That's a big thing that we need to work on. And legalism strongly resists change with man-made traditions and preferences and culture. There was a letter that was written over 175 years ago by Martin Van Buren. He was the governor of New York State at that time. And he wrote to the president of our country, President Jackson, January 31st, 1829. And here's what he wrote. To President Jackson, the canal system of this country is being threatened by the spread of a new form of transportation known as railroads. The federal government must preserve the canals for the following reasons. One, if canal boats are supplanted by railroads, serious unemployment will result. Captains, cooks, drivers, hostlers, repairmen, lock tenders will be left without means of livelihood, not to mention the numerous farmers now employed in growing hay for horses. Two, Boat builders would suffer and tow line, whip, and harness makers would be left destitute. Three, canal boats are absolutely essential to the defense of the United States. In the event of the expected trouble with England, the Erie Canal would be the only means by which we could ever move supplies so vital to waging modern war. As you may well know, Mr. President, railroad carriages are pulled at the enormous speed of 15 miles per hour <coughs> by engines, which in addition to endangering life and limb of passengers, roar and snort their way through the countryside, setting fire to crops, scaring the livestock, and frightening our women and children. The Almighty certainly never intended that people should travel at such breakneck speed. Martin Van Buren, governor of New York. I read that and I said, how widely progressive can you get? <coughs> change. He was struggling with change. If he could only live today, <laughs> where we're in interstellar travel and all kinds of stuff going on today, he would say, wow, 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 wow. 
In the churches today, many things we do are based on humanly devised traditions, preferences, and culture. We don't have any chapter and verse for them, why we do them. Let me give you a few. There are people who feel the church building ought to have stained glass windows. They can't worship if they don't have stained glass windows. Anybody got a chapter and verse for that? Uh, they'll fight over them. Or in the lighting, they've got to be chandeliers or pews and not chairs. And, uh, where the pulpit is going to be located. Tom Rayner just came out with a book this year entitled, Who Moved My Pulpit? And it's a book on change. And he's suggesting ideas on how to do change. How about the number of services? Anybody know a chapter and verse that says you must have, if you're going to be a biblical church, Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night prayer meeting. Anybody know a chapter and verse that says you need to have those? Okay. About the times of services, I'll never forget the first time that happened in my lifetime that a Bible preaching church in our area moved away from 11 o'clock morning worship and went to 10 or 10.30, I don't remember it was, people began to say, oh, man, isn't it too bad that church is no longer a fundamental church? (laughs) Times of services. Can you change that? Can you change the number of services? Can you just have one service on Sunday? Think. Think, where is the Bible? Don't be more than a Bible. Don't be less than a Bible. Uh, Is it okay to have a choir? Or instead of a choir, can we have a praise group? What about instruments that are on the platform? You might be amazed to find out all the different kinds of instruments that were used for worship in the Bible that we preclude and say can't be part of our worship. Uh, I've gone to meddling now, haven't I? The use of old Elizabethan English and and, uh, just so many other things that are purely humanly devised traditions and preferences and the culture that's existed. And it's amazing to me how we come up with proof texts. You know what a proof text is? A proof text is where you make a verse say something that you want it to say and uh, try to support your position or practice with it. And there was a believer who struggled with smoking and he got saved. And he people talked to him a little bit about it and said, You know, maybe you ought to think about your smoking habit. It's bad on your health, and God is in your body, and 
you're his home, and do you want to destroy that, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And they gave him all the reasons why. And he said, well, I don't think God's opposed to smoking. I bet I can find a verse in the Bible that would support smoking. So he made it his mission, and he took his Bible, and he started in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, he began to read through. And he got to a place in the book of Genesis, chapter 24, where uh, Rebecca was coming back with uh, Abraham's servant, and they were coming to the place where her new husband was going to be. And the Bible specifically says when they got there, she lighted off her camel. He said, I knew it. I knew I could find a verse in the Bible that supports smoking. That's a proof text. And we are adept at trying to support our traditions and our preferences and our culture with proof texts. And uh, I'm not sure God's always pleased with that. What are some of the areas where that can happen and where the conflict is today in our churches? Well, quickly, obviously, days, times, and places for worship. The number, types, order, and demeanor, learning styles of the services and meetings. Those are debatable today and a lot of fighting going on with what the services are going to be like. Chosen language of use in the church. Some churches are still hanging on to old Elizabethan English. In the United States, that was an appropriate language in the church when the country first was founded because they were people speaking old Elizabethan English. But we've long left old Elizabethan English in our country. And we're still trying to talk to people with old Elizabethan English. Now, the text from which you translate the Bible, that is an issue. But once you decide what text you're going to use, then you've got to try to get to a language that the people speak so you can communicate effectively with them. People don't make major decisions in their life unless they hear it in their heart language. That's why missionaries who never learn the language well don't see many results. They're not talking to the people in a language that's close to them. Very, very, very important. And I wish I could spend more time on a lot of these. Some matters of music. Uh, I have walked in where angels fear to tread. And... Uh, wrote a book on music. And I did this way back when I was president at the college and seminary because I heard all the squabbling going on on campus as well as in the churches. And so I said, I'm just going to study this out, see if I can get just as where God is in the Bible. Not more than where God is at, not less than where God is at. <clears throat> so I wrote down all that I could find. And... Uh, tried to come up with something that would represent what God teaches about music. And you're welcome. If you can help any with the cost of these, these cost me about 10 bucks to make. I don't want any profit on it. But if you could help me replace the ones that I have, 
I would be delighted. You can just leave it here. But if you want one of these, just come up. If you have 10 bucks, you can lay down fine as a donation towards that project. I would accept that and be grateful. But I want to help you. That's an area where there's a lot of fighting going on, and I don't think we ought to be fighting. Most of the time, we're reacting out of our traditions and preferences and the culture we've always been part of. Okay? Technology, uh, the variety of possible ministries to choose from, standards, various lifestyle, cultural, social issues. Uh, one of you mentioned to me that you knew where Montrose Bible Conference was in Montrose, Pennsylvania. And Arthur Woolsey, who was an early graduate of Baptist Bible Seminary, and uh, he and a young, another young pastor, they were both in their first pastorates, and they went to Montrose Bible Conference for a pastor's day. And they had two world-renowned speakers there. And the first one to speak was Herbert Lockyer. Have you ever read his books? Herbert Lockyer, he's written all the women of the Bible, all the men of the Bible, all of this of the Bible. He's written a lot of books. He spent his whole hour telling these young preachers that they ought to always wear a tie and a white shirt and a suit. He spent his whole hour doing that. And Art Woolsey leaned over to his friend and he said, I bet that guy sitting on the front pew down there will leave. He won't come back for this next session. Because he was sitting down there with his sneakers on and he didn't have any socks on and he had on a gym outfit. And he said, he'll probably leave. And his friend leaned back and he says, I don't think he'll leave. He's the speaker next hour. <laughs> and his name was Harry Ironsides. <laughs> We got to get over some of the stuff we are hung up on, haven't we? Uh, sola Scriptura. Remember that. And uh, quickly, these are some of the impediments that we've looked at this hour. You know what they are. You got them written down there. But I think they're all very vital in our churches. And uh, we need to. Here's a book. If you haven't read it, uh, you'll find interesting. Deep Church. A Third Way Beyond Emerging and Traditional. Jim Belcher was one of the original eight guys in California that began the emerging church movement. Only he pulled away from it. When they began to soften their doctrinal positions in order to pursue their cultural interests and identity and connectedness, Jim Belcher felt they went too far and they gave up too much. So he wrote this book. It's an excellent, thought-provoking kind of a book. And if you want to read it, I think it would be very helpful to you. I must stop. Give you time to get up and walk around. Get the blood flowing. Yeah. You start thinking about it, you know, 
children's ministry more often than not is, is taking the responsibility that the parents have of, of teaching their children, right? They're, they're just dropping the kids off in more instances, right? Our job is to remind the parents that this is, this is right, right, right. Yeah. But they want their, when they come to church, they want their kids to be in a quality program that is just very meaningful and yeah. dynamic, and those kids can't wait to get back there the next Sunday. Brother, I, uh, I have a good friend of mine, and this uh, the, the theological debate between Calvinism and Arminianism, yeah. he calls himself a Calvinian. I did. He calls himself a Calvinian. <laughs> a Calvinian, and I thought, there's the answer. There's yeah, balance, right? There is. That's and we got to get God teaches not only his sovereignty, but also human responsibility. And you got to balance those. Philippians 2, 12, and 13 is perfect. And I, and, I, and I don't understand it. I don't want anybody to hear this. This is between you and me, but I've, I've struggled with, this, the old, with the old King James for years. And maybe I'm being honest. And look, it's a poor translation to begin with. Most of it is based on the great Bible. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, yeah. But I really appreciate what you're saying, brother. And it, these are areas that I struggled with for a long time. You know, really seriously. You know, to break away from tradition. I mean, and you say change for the sake of change. It's just change. It, it's you, you've got you've got some emotion, but doesn't it's like being doesn't mean a, a thing. rocking chair. You're not going very far. Other than upset people, that's all it does. And you don't want to do that. There's a process, I think, at the time. We tend to get it when we get an idea, especially strong leaders, fixated on it, and they just go. And it doesn't matter, you know, how many people they throw aside to do that. They just keep going. Yeah. So you, they have to realize, I've, I've talked to young guys, and I told them, I said, listen, if, if you're leading a church, and, and, and you've got your board of deacons, and you've got an idea, especially if they're all over 60, you're close to it, don't say, man, I've got this great idea, and we're going to... Just don't do that. Just say, listen, here's something I've been thinking about. What do you guys think about it? Yeah, exactly. Get them thinking. <laughs> and, and, That's what I try to do in these is provoke thinking. Yeah, yeah, right. I appreciate it very, very much. I was excited to come here last night and, and uh, just really excited what you're doing. So God bless you, brother. Oh, thank you. He has. Yeah. And he's been turning things upside down. <laughs> yeah. And I want to tell you, last January we had a meeting with the Sunday school and all these other things he wanted to try. And there was a lot of us just had strong reservations. He said, Will you give me six months? For those who don't agree, he said, Will you give me six months? Anyway, we did. And, uh, like, I, I really think, like, with what you're bringing forth here, like, it just is confirming the direction that he's going in. We have a lot of young families in this last year that's been coming into the church, a lot. And he has had this vision for three years of 
basically just about what you're talking about here, getting into the community, going where the people are at. Yeah. And it's starting to gel. And it's wonderful. Like, what do we do? What, <laughs> like, what are we going to do with these people? And uh, that's that's uh, that's where we're at right now. It's like how to meet the needs of these new ones. Wonderful. That's so great. It, it just, yeah, I was like, and I don't know why I just had this, I just, it was strong to come down here, right? Because this is not my church. So yeah. It's strong to come down. And I think it was because of all the changes that have been taking place. And it's like, man. But anyway, uh, the other question is, you didn't speak in Niagara Falls here just back a while ago. ago no. Did do this conference? I've been at the Niagara Falls mm -hmm. several years ago, though. Well, not our, recently. Our youth pastor was just to a, something up there. Uh, I think it was in the spring. He came back all fired up. But it sounds to me like, it almost sounds to me like, has Dustin been using your notes? <laughs> he, he could be. <laughs> but I do know that Mike, uh, our pastor, like he really likes Andy Stanley. And I know that he's been using some of his. He's right on. He's right on. He needs your support. He does, yeah. And I mean, I, I love our little pastor. Man, she's, it, it's all the change. There's so much of it, right? Yep, yeah. yep. Yeah. But the outcome is awesome. Yeah. And I mean, when you start seeing all these people getting saved and all these young families coming in, that's just awesome. I want to tell you what, we just come from a small community. You can tell just driving around here. But I... Back a year ago, the Lord brought this couple from Quebec. He was involved in drug and alcohol uh, not ministry, drug and alcohol rehabilitation. Yeah. Not a Christian. Not a Christian. Neither he nor his wife. God brought them down in this area. They were going to come. They were retired, or he retired. She was starting to go through that process. Brought them into our area. He came. His neighbor, his neighbor is a deacon in our church. He came to prayer meeting. He started coming to prayer meeting. All these questions. He got saved. His wife is saved and baptized. We had, um, we had. Uh, it's been a football player that was into drugs. We've had him come down into our area, into the schools. But it's like God is just like He's bringing people in. Right. Through so that Mike's had this vision. And I mean, and God bless you, Paul and Patrick. He just brought them to us, right? Wonderful. Put them in our laps. Wonderful. <laughs> Great stories. <clears throat>